Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. Please turn with me to John chapter 18. Today we begin the road to the cross, and we do so with Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas. John chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. I hope you've turned there. I hope you'll give your attention with me to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to be a congregation that, is, that knows nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so as we enter this portion of John's Gospel where the road runs inexorably on to the cross, we pray, Father, for eyes to see Jesus Christ in all of His glory. That glory is revealed in His death and consummated in His resurrection. We pray, Father, that Your Word would do its work today by the Holy Spirit and that we would leave recognizing more fully Jesus' absolute willingness to suffer in our place so that we might live. Father, give us eyes to see the Son of God revealed in glory through the cross. Father, please keep me from error. We are grateful to you, God, that you have given us the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We pray that as a congregation, we would hold fast to that faith. And so we ask for discernment today. We pray, Father, for steadfastness. We pray, Father, for open ears to hear and to believe. God, thank you that you hear us when we pray. We ask that you would do your work now among us by the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the New Testament Gospels have sometimes been described as passion narratives with extended introductions. In each of the four Gospels, the pace of the narrative slows down considerably when Jesus' passion begins. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, which has 16 chapters, six of those chapters are devoted to one week of Jesus' life. The same is true in John's Gospel to a lesser extent. John has 21 chapters, and three of them in full are devoted to just the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's quite appropriate for us to say that the Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. When we reach the road to the cross, we are coming to the pinnacle of Jesus' life and ministry. That being said, the emphasis on Jesus' passion contains an unexpected danger. Because of the amount of material devoted to the passion, it can be easy to get caught up in the history, the background, and the details, and lose sight of Jesus Christ. We might call this the danger of a Christless passion. For example, a number of years ago, I went to a Good Friday service that highlighted the physical pain of crucifixion. It was very detailed, very informative. There was a handout about all the pressure points on the body that crucifixion inflicted. I learned a lot about what it was like to die hanging on a Roman cross. But do you know what we didn't talk much about in that Good Friday service? That fact that it was Jesus who suffered that pain. That his death was substitutionary. That his blood was a means of atonement. Effective for the salvation of his people. Friends, that's what I mean by a Christless passion. Because of the amount of material and our familiarity with it, it can be unexpectedly easy to lose sight of Jesus when talking about the passion. We compare Matthew with John, and we scour Josephus for all sort of corroborating material, or we dwell on Pilate's skepticism, and in the end, the one thing that we have missed is that the Son of God laid down His life for His church. Clearly, then, we don't want a Christless passion. Amen? Today marks the beginning of our road to Easter Sunday. God willing, we will arrive on Easter morning at the resurrection in John's Gospel. So today begins our walk towards the cross and the empty tomb, and at every step of that way, we want to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How is His glory revealed in these events that we know so well? How is the truth of His Word confirmed? Even in His silence, what is He saying about knowing God and trusting the Father? And ultimately, how does His death accomplish, once and for all, the salvation of His church? At every step of the way, we want to remain focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that purposeful Christ focus begins this morning with Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are two perspectives on this heinous moment in the Garden, and both of them have value. On the one hand, the betrayal is the darkest display of human depravity in world history. Judas, who broke bread with Jesus, who saw the water into wine, who witnessed Lazarus walk out of the tomb, that Judas lifts his heel against the Messiah, as the Psalms predicted. 
And Judas does so for the cheap price of 30 pieces of silver. From that perspective, the betrayal is the darkest display of human depravity in the history of the world. But the other perspective is even more instructive for us and also encouraging. If this is the darkest display of human depravity, it is also simultaneously the brightest display of Jesus' faithfulness. As we're going to see today, Jesus is in command of this situation. Jesus allows the betrayal to happen. At no point is Jesus a victim. At every moment, he remains in command. So that the betrayal is ultimately a display of his faithfulness to God the Father. You see, this is another way how to not have a Christless passion. Could we talk a long time today about Judas and his sin? Yes, we could. And we're going to have a few things to say about Judas. But our overwhelming focus ought to be on Jesus rather than Judas. Even in the betrayal, the Son of God is faithful to the Father, and that's what we ought to note. In terms of an outline, then, we're going to consider four ways The betrayal amplifies Jesus' glory. Four ways the betrayal actually increases our worship of Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verses 1 to 3, where the betrayal demonstrates Jesus' willingness to suffer. Jesus' willingness to suffer. The passage begins in a rather nondescript way. Verse 1 gives us the setting. Listen again, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. We know from the other gospel accounts that this garden is called Gethsemane, and it's located on the Mount of Olives, just east of the city. Again, this is all pretty familiar to us. We know this setting. But notice the detail John gives us in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Friends, that detail is telling. Judas knows Jesus' pattern. During the Passover, you had to remain within the city limits of Jerusalem, which made housing a bit of a challenge with the, the, the crush of people that would come. But fortunately, those limits were extended outside of the city, all the way to the Mount of Olives. So this garden was an ideal spot for Jesus to spend time with the, with the disciples. It was within the prescribed limits, but away from the crowds. It's ideal. But it also means that Jesus, Judas knows where to find Jesus. He knows where he's going to go. And let's remember, as though it bears repeating, let's remember that Judas's intentions are absolutely sinister. Look at the show of force in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. For one man, and that man a teacher, no less. For one man, that's quite the show of force. Judas comes with both religious and political authority. The Jewish religious leaders send some of their officers, verse 3 says. So Judas' scheme has the stamp of official Judaism. 
Just like chapter 1 said, he came into his own and his own received him not. So he come, it comes with official religious backing. But the soldiers in verse 3 are very likely Romans. These are Roman soldiers. Indicating that Judas also has political backing. So when you put all of this together, friends, the sense of verse 3 is that the entire world is united in opposing Jesus. Both Jew and Gentile come out with Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord of glory. It's just like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, and are opposed to the glory of God. Before we make a connection with verse 1, we ought to answer the question, why would Judas do this? This is the worst betrayal in human history, so how do we understand Judas's actions? Well, you have to understand Judas in light of two concepts, sin and sovereignty. On the one hand, Judas betrays Jesus because Judas's heart is enslaved to sin. Judas does not trust Jesus Christ. And therefore, Judas's heart remains dead in his sin. Judas loves the darkness and refuses to come to the light. So make no mistake, friends. Judas betrays Jesus because he absolutely wants to. His desire is to oppose God. So sin explains Judas's betrayal. On the other hand, sovereignty also explains Judas's betrayal. Jesus has been very clear on this all through John's gospel. He predicted Judas's betrayal in chapter 13 and he did so again in chapter 17. And each time Jesus said Judas's decision would fulfill scripture. The Old Testament passage in view was is probably Psalm 41 where David is betrayed by one of his closest friends. David's experience foreshadows Jesus' experience. In a much greater way, Judas betrays the son of David, the true king of Israel. And that means, follow me here, that means God sovereignly orchestrated Judas's betrayal of Jesus. God has ordained that Judas's action would fulfill God's plan for the Messiah. Now, does that make God responsible for Judas's sin? No. Remember what we said just a moment ago. Judas does what he wants to do. His heart is opposed to God. Judas acts freely because he desires wickedness. God is not the author of sin. Not even the worst sin in human history, the betrayal of the Son of God. God is not the author of sin. But God is sovereign to such a degree that even humanity's sin, which we choose and are accountable for before God, even humanity's sin serves God's ultimate purpose. So why does Judas do this? Because his heart desires to do it. His heart loves darkness. And God, in his sovereign providence, uses Judas's sinful desire to fulfill his purpose for his glory. It's just like what Joseph said in Genesis 50. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. 
Now, let's go back and read verse 1 again. And this time, let's do so knowing that Judas anticipates where to find Jesus. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. What seems at first like a nondescript setting of the scene now becomes a demonstration of Jesus' willingness to suffer. To put it plainly, Jesus doesn't hide from his enemies. He doesn't change his routine and go to a different garden. No, Jesus goes to the place that Judas knows because Jesus is absolutely willing to endure what is about to come. I'm so glad that John began his passion account in this way because it reminds us of something that we often get wrong when we talk about Easter Sunday and Good Friday. It reminds us of something that we often get wrong. Jesus Christ is not a victim. Write that across your bulletin there. Jesus Christ is not a victim. It's true that Jesus suffers and dies unjustly. He did nothing to deserve death. But in that injustice, brothers and sisters, he's not a victim. Judas doesn't get the drop on Jesus. The Pharisees don't succeed in scheming against the Son of God. Pilate doesn't overrule his Creator. Jesus goes to the cross with absolute and total willingness. He's not a victim. He goes to the cross because he chooses to do so. And that willingness begins right here with Jesus going to the garden that he knows Judas is going to pick out. Why is this significant, you ask? Why does this matter? Because it helps us understand the true glory of the cross. Sadly, there have been many people down through history who have suffered and died unjustly. But Jesus is not one among many such sufferers. Jesus is the only truly innocent sufferer. And therefore, his willingness to die, his willing embrace of the cross reveals his glory. He dies because he's faithful to God. He dies because he loves his church. He dies for the joy that was set before him, the glorification of God in the redemption of a people for his own name. So as we, over these next several weeks, as we make our way to Easter Sunday, let's never, let's never mistakenly shake our heads and say, oh, poor Jesus. He's just a victim of evil. He's not a victim. He's the Lord. And he willingly embraces the cross. And his willingness is both his glory and our salvation. That's the first way the betrayal helps us worship Jesus. It shows us his willingness to suffer. Let's consider the second way the betrayal amplifies Jesus' glory. From verses 4 to 6, the betrayal reveals Jesus' authority to rule. Jesus' authority to rule. Verse 4 begins the exchange between Jesus and his enemies. And strikingly, Jesus takes the initiative. Look again, verse 4. Then, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Right away, we're reminded of God's sovereignty. John tells us that Jesus knows all that would happen to him. How does Jesus know everything that would happen to him? Is he just a good guesser? No. 
He knows because God, not Judas, is in control. This is God's plan unfolding. And Jesus, as the Son of God, is confident of what the Father is about to do. Verse 4 is also striking for the fact that Jesus initiates the conversation. Did you notice this? A mob comes. They have weapons and torches and lanterns. They come looking for Jesus, and Jesus is the one that initiates the conversation. It's only a small detail, but it's an indication that Jesus, not Judas, is in charge of this encounter. That small note of Jesus' authority grows to a crescendo in verse 5. Listen again, verse 5. Jesus just asked them, who are you looking for? They answered, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. Jesus' identification of himself is rather profound. The ESV translates Jesus' answer as, I am he. But you could also render it just simply as, I am. In fact, that simple rendering, I'll argue, captures Jesus' point. The mob seeks Jesus of Nazareth, in their view, a man who has troubled Israel long enough. Jesus' answer does not deny that he is that man, I am he. Jesus clearly identifies himself as that man. But his answer also proclaims that this man, Jesus, is none other than the I am of Israel, God in the flesh. This is not the first time Jesus has spoken this way. Do you remember the exchange with the Jews in chapter 8? The Jews are convinced that they have Abraham as their father and therefore they don't need to listen to Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' response? He said to them, before Abraham was, I am. That was a clear claim of deity on Jesus' part. And the construction is the same between John chapter 8 and John chapter 18. The soldiers seek Jesus of Nazareth, a man, and Jesus steps forward to say, I am. The man, Jesus, takes upon himself the name of God because he is God. The next verse, verse 6, confirms our interpretation. Notice what happens in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You would think they wouldn't arrest him now. But that's how dark the human heart is. We see God in the flesh and decide, yeah, let's kill him. Jesus' authority confounds his enemies. They are stunned that a man they have come to arrest would speak to them like this. Again, this is not the first time that something like this has happened in John's Gospel. Back in chapter 7, remember the chief priests sent some officers to arrest Jesus. And then the, chief, the officers come back and they don't have Jesus. And the chief priests are like, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, no one ever spoke like that guy. How are we supposed to arrest him? It's the same thing here. That earlier occurrence happened in the broad daylight of the temple. Verse 6 happens in the dark of night, which makes it all the more astounding. They have all the cover of darkness. No one's going to see their wickedness. And they're stunned. So while it might seem like Judas has the authority over Jesus, the opposite is true. Even in this, account, even in this encounter, Jesus has the authority over his enemies. Friends, that exchange in verses 5 and 6, that exchange between Jesus and his enemies, that exchange is a preview of the end of the age. 
It's like the last day in miniature. Before they can arrest Jesus, his enemies fall to the ground before him. Jesus' authority is so evident, so clear, and so powerful that even his enemies are forced to bow in acknowledgement to him. Now, in John 18, they get up and arrest him, but don't miss the foretaste of the end. One day, one day, very soon, Jesus' enemies will bow before his authority and they won't get up to oppose him. In that day, Jesus will reign and there will be no more enemies. There will be only glory. In that sense, verses 5 and 6 are a preview. It's a foreshadowing of the end of the age when Jesus will have all authority to rule. That's the second way the betrayal helps us worship him. The third way the betrayal amplifies Jesus' glory, verses 7 and 9, 7 to 9. The betrayal confirms Jesus' faithfulness to shepherd. Jesus' faithfulness to shepherd. The exchange between Jesus and his enemies is repeated in verse 7. Jesus again asks them, Whom do you seek? And again they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. The reason for the repetition becomes clear in verse 8. Listen again, verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, then let these men go. Jesus goes through the exchange all over again in order to protect his disciples. That's the point. He doesn't risk the guards arresting the wrong guy. So twice, Jesus identifies himself so that there's no doubt. If you've come to arrest Jesus, then let the other men go. Jesus' command is for the disciples' protection. And the command is effective. Look at verse 9. This is John's interpretation. Verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. His command is effective. It was just one chapter ago that Jesus prayed for the disciples' preservation. John 17, 12. I have guarded them, Jesus prayed. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. So he just prayed this one chapter ago. But this theme of preservation runs all through John's gospel. John chapter 6, verse 39, for example, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What's going on in verse 9? The good shepherd is laying down his life for the sheep. That's the takeaway of this exchange in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is the good shepherd. And in faithfulness to his Father, Jesus protects his sheep. This is why Jesus so clearly and repeatedly identifies himself before his enemies. He is protecting, preserving, keeping, guarding, watching over his own. So that not one of them is lost. In that sense... The disciples' protection anticipates their spiritual salvation. Jesus protects them physically in the present, and that protection is foreshadowing what he's going to accomplish at the cross, their eternal salvation. He's not going to lose any one of his sheep. So, remember, we're reading this as Christians. We're reading this with the eyes of faith. So when the officers leave the Garden of Gethsemane with only Jesus and the 11 disciples go free, when that happens, 
you and I should read that as a reminder that the world will never prevail against Jesus' church. Remember, the whole world is united against Jesus, verse 3, and yet not one of his sheep are lost. He's faithful to shepherd his people all the way to the end. Does that protection extend to us? We might ask. It's a good question. I have friends who would read John 18 as merely history and say that it doesn't apply to us because we're not the original disciples. So it's a good question to ask. Does this protection extend to us? Is this a one-time example of Jesus watching over the flock? Or is this an ongoing kind of protection? Are we misreading the passage to put ourselves into it? Well, I'll argue no, we're not misreading it. We're not illegitimately inserting ourselves into John 18. It's true that the original disciples are the primary recipients of Jesus' protection. Peter and James and Matthew and Thomas. They knew what it was like to be protected by the Good Shepherd in a way that you and I won't know. But that does not mean we are therefore excluded from the Lord's protection. Let me show you why. Notice how verse 9 emphasizes Jesus' word being fulfilled. You see, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 9. So the disciples are protected because Jesus is faithful to his promise. Jesus keeps his word. And friends, he's given the same word to us. Just look back one chapter. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Prays for his other disciples. That's the connection. Jesus has promised to protect all those who believe. And that includes you and me. And since Jesus never breaks a promise. Just let that sink in for a second. You and I break promises every week. Since Jesus never breaks a promise. You and I can take great comfort from John 18. Jesus' protection of the eleven in Gethsemane is a reminder that he will protect you and I all the way to the gates of glory. Do you know how he protects you? Do you know how the good shepherd watches over you? By his word. The very word that tells you he never breaks a promise. As we abide in Christ's word, his word abides in us, strengthening us and keeping us in the faith. So don't grow weary, brothers and sisters. Please hear me. Don't grow weary of taking in God's word. I know some of you probably came to church today worn down by the cares of this world. And perhaps in that weariness, you have begun to fear, am I even going to make it to the end? You ever think that? I do. Perhaps you've begun to think, I've got so far to go. The last day is so far away. How in the world am I going to make it there? The answer is through Jesus' word. Don't grow weary of taking in his word, remembering his word, rehearsing his word, singing his word, praying his word, reading his word, listening to his word. Don't grow weary, friends. That's how God keeps you. That's how the good shepherd watches over your soul through his word. So when you don't feel like reading it, take the step of faith and open your Bible and read. 
Jesus' protection of the disciples in John 18 is a reminder, it's a promise that he's going to shepherd all of his people and he shepherds us through his word. Don't grow weary. Take heart. Keep going. Let's finish with the fourth perspective on Jesus' betrayal from verses 10 and 11. The betrayal anticipates Jesus' suffering to save. Jesus' suffering to save. Peter sees where things are going. Don't you love the Apostle Peter? (laughs) Peter sees where things are going and Peter wrongly assumes that he needs to protect Jesus, not the other way around. Notice verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. There's all sorts of interesting discussion and commentaries on how do you cut off a person's ear. You're either a really bad aim or you're not really committed to what you're about to do. We might be tempted to admire Peter's bravery, but in reality he is severely misguided. To keep Jesus from the cross is to oppose the will of God. In that sense, this is the pinnacle of the disciples' misunderstanding. They continue to view Jesus' cross as something to be prevented. Peter doesn't realize that he needs protection. He thinks that he ought to protect Jesus. Jesus quickly intervenes. He reorients Peter's misguided zeal and his misguided aim. Notice verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Friends, there's a lot of truth packed into verse 11. Jesus speaks of the cup that the Father has given to him. We'll talk about that cup in just a moment. But for now, we need to see that the cup comes from the Father. This is what God has sent Jesus to do. To suffer and to die for the salvation of his people. So, God's will is not derailing in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just the opposite. Right now, in Gethsemane, with Judas handing Jesus over to the darkness, right now, at that very moment, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. So verse 11 should reframe Peter's thinking. God's will is not coming undone, it's being fulfilled. This is not Judas's cup for Jesus, this is not the Pharisee's cup, it's not Pilate's cup, it's the Father's cup. It's God's will. And what a cup it is. The image of a cup comes from the Old Testament. Where in this context, it symbolizes God's judgment or His wrath. Psalm 75 verse 8 is a good example. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And He pours out from it. And the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup, you see, is God's judgment. And he pours out that cup against sin. He makes the wicked drink it. But it's at this point that we stop short, right? If we've learned anything from John's gospel, it's that Jesus is the beloved son of the Father. The Father loves the Son with an eternal love. What's more, Jesus is perfect in righteousness. He is the Son of God. He is equal to the Father in glory. 
So he is perfect in righteousness as the Father is perfect. Jesus is not numbered among the wicked. Jesus has not sinned. Jesus does not deserve the cup of Psalm 75. The psalm clearly says the wicked will drink the cup of God's judgment. But in John 18, Jesus says to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father gives me? If this wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't believe it. We wouldn't even dare to say it. The cross is the judgment of God against sin. But that judgment is not poured out on us. It's poured out on the Son. Jesus, at the cross, drinks your cup. He drinks my cup. So listen to me. Every bitter thought, every careless word, every wicked deed, every moment of lust and pride and covetousness, every sin that you desperately hope no one will ever know about. All of God's judgment against that sin, Jesus Christ took upon Himself. He drank the cup. If you or I drank the cup of God's judgment, we would be utterly crushed and cut off from God forever. Just an ounce of God's cup would destroy us eternally. Our only hope is that the Son of God would drink the cup in our place. And friends, that's what Jesus came to do. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus' death for your salvation, if you're a Christian this morning, then Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment that you deserve. That's why He dies. To satisfy God's wrath Against your sin. Not just sin in general as a category. Your sin. My sin. Without his death we would never live. But through his death we are saved. We are reconciled to God because the son died in our place. Condemned. Crushed. Destroyed. Cut off from the land of the living. Under the wrath of God. And the unthinkable reality of the cross is that Jesus drank the cup to the bottom. He drank it down to the dregs, Psalm 75 says. There's no more wrath remaining for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Again, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection for your salvation, if you're a Christian this morning, God is not holding your sin against you. He may discipline you as a father disciplines his children because he loves you. But he's not going to judge you for your sin. Why not? How can you say such a thing? Why will God not judge me for my sin? Because the Son of God drank the cup of God's judgment down to the bottom, down to the dregs, down to the very last drop. And that means there's no more judgment left for the people of God. God's not holding your sin against you. And that means, brothers and sisters, don't check out at this point. Make the application. That means you and I can live in the light. When we stumble in sin, still, we can quickly confess it. We can quickly acknowledge it. We can quickly seek to change. Why? Because we're not afraid of judgment. We're not afraid of judgment. What can man do to me? Nothing. We're not afraid of God's judgment. 
Christ drank the cup of God's judgment against my sin. And as a Christian now, I live in the grace of God. And that means I can live in the light. I don't have to hide in the darkness anymore. We can confess our sin. We can lay down the facade of religious performance that Christians are so prone to engage in. We can lay down the facade of religious performance and we can take up the easy yoke of the gospel. The judgment is finished. There's no more wrath remaining for the people of God. Praise God. The judgment is finished and that means we're free now to be holy before God. Christ has finished the cup. Isn't this wonderfully good news? Praise God that Jesus Christ drank the cup in our place. That God's wrath against my sin has been satisfied once and for all. I've been talking to Christians most of this time. If you're not a Christian, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection to save you, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian this morning, then I pray that God's Spirit would do the thing that only God can do. Open your eyes to see your need for a Savior because of your sin and to bring you to Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I just want to talk very frankly to you. Maybe you're visiting church today or maybe mom and dad made you come to church because you live in their house. If you're not a Christian, I just want to talk very frankly to you. Your sin is one day going to bring you face to face with the judgment of God. Please don't assume that on that day you will be able to skirt by and hide from God's attention. You won't. Sin is that serious. It's so serious that God will judge every sin that has ever been committed. That judgment can go only one of two places. Either you will experience God's judgment against your sin, or by faith you can trust that Jesus took that judgment in your place. God's judgment is coming. It can only go one of two places. Either you're going to bear it, or you can trust that Jesus Christ bore it for you on the cross, thereby saving your soul. So please don't brush past this moment. This is why Jesus came. He came to drink the Father's cup, to bear the judgment of God against the sin of God's people. Please don't brush past this moment. We're going to sing a song to close And my prayer is that God, by His Holy Spirit, would do what only God can do. That He would convict you this morning. That the only remedy for your sin is the death of Jesus Christ in your place. Won't you trust Him? I pray that you will. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we think of the wonderful truth that in our place condemned Jesus Christ hung on the cross. What wondrous love is this? If it were not in the Bible, Father, we would never dare to believe it or speak it or think it that you, the holy God, would take upon yourself the judgment our sin deserved. 
we praise the name of Jesus Christ. We gladly confess that there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. We pray, Father, now that as we sing, your spirit would stir in our hearts. That as believers, Father, we would be renewed to live in the light because the judgment of God is finished. And for those among us who do not know Christ, that the Spirit would move even now, granting them the new birth, so that they would see their need and flee to Jesus Christ in joyous faith. Please hear our prayer, God. We ask in Jesus' name.